Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hello, hello, friends and neighbors uh, through the U.S. and globally, including Canada. This podcast is called Taking a Walk, and I'm your grateful host, Buzz Knight. We seek to do as many Taking a Walks as we can, uh, ultimately in person. But sometimes when somebody is uh, based uh, outside of the country and we desperately want to have them on, then we, we bend the rules and we do it virtually. And our guest is from Canada. Matt Kundel is our guest. He has graciously had me on his Sound Off podcast previously a few times. I had a blast. And he is the host of the Sound Off podcast where he talks to folks about broadcasting, trends, new media, and whatever else comes up on his mind. We'll talk to Matt next on Taking a Walk. Well, Matt, I wish we were uh, together walking in the neighborhood where you are in Canada, but uh, virtually next best thing. Welcome to Taking a Walk. It's great to be here. Thanks. What part of Canada are you? I'm in Winnipeg, which is dead center. We're two hours north of Grand Forks and seven hours north of Minneapolis. And what's the weather like today in your beautiful neighborhood? Got about 28 degrees Celsius, which puts us in the 80s Fahrenheit. I like that. So when did you get hooked on broadcasting? When did you know you were hooked? Wow, I've got early memories of listening to AM radio like CKGM in Montreal and CFRA in Ottawa. But I think I knew I wanted to go into radio sometime around 1987, 1988, getting into the graduating years of of high school. And I thought, man, it'd be a lot of fun to be on the radio. And I'd wake up every morning listening to Shome FM, the legendary Shome in Montreal. And I thought it, it would just be 
awesome to be one of those personalities on the radio. And I had my mind made up and from that point forward said, I'm going to be on the radio one day. Complete certainty. Yeah, I, I did a lot of asking. I spoke to some, uh, the evening announcer at Shome at the time was Claude Richot, who was an you know, a rather unusual announcer in that, you know, if you if you just showed up in, in Montreal and listened to him, he had a very thick French accent, but it just absolutely worked for the city. But one of the things he told me was that if you really want to be on the radio, you really have to want it. And that was the attitude that I took from that point going forward. Wasn't there another takeaway probably that you don't know if you have something unless you ask? Absolutely. Actually, I remember a book by a Montreal physicist sometime in the mid 2000s that, that came out. And, you know, if you want it, you ask for it. And it was very simple physics that really, you know, comes to mind whenever you, you want something, you actually have to ask the universe for it and it may or may not deliver. And the worst answer you can be delivered is no. Do you remember the first time cracking the mic on the air? Absolutely. I don't know if I should count the one at university at campus radio. Because it was a closed circuit radio station, but the first time my voice went out over the air, whereby I was in charge of, you know, the show was a 6 a.m. in the month of May of 1989 in Kentville, Nova Scotia. The radio station was Magic 97.7, and it broadcast to the Annapolis Valley, and it was early 6 a.m. on a Sunday morning, and they let me have two hours of broadcast time until 8 o'clock when I'd take over and do some tape programming instead of just me playing some records. And do you remember the uh, the jitters when you first uh, opened your mouth? I did not sleep the night before. And it's a Saturday, and it's a college town in Wolfville, Nova Scotia. Uh, I'll be a little quieter because it was the month of May. And this was a summer job that I was going to get, and I think maybe I was going to be make like $75 an hour. And why would you take a summer job for $75? Or, uh, no, I meant to say... I'd be taking a summer job for $75 a shift. And why would you take a summer job for that money? I said, well, I'll find a way to get on some all nights and make it, you know, extend throughout the week. And I I wound up doing that. I I got lucky enough to do that. And it was one of the best summers I ever had was, was being on the radio. And eventually there were some things that I could pick up. You can take the cruiser out and go out to a, a local bingo. There was lots of farmer's markets and they always seemed to need help at the radio station. So I made a summer job out of it. And I would imagine you learned another, another lesson, which was um, in order to advance up the ladder at places, you need to put in your time. I think just hanging around the radio station was going to be enough for me. I was excited enough wherever there was a microphone and a, and a radio station. The Annapolis Valley network of radio stations there were four stations four ams all country and one fm that was playing pop music which i which i liked but spending a summer in in a a farm community and getting to know people was really the thing that that made me at one with the annapolis valley i actually wound up staying there for five years and at the same time got a degree in political science and history at acadia university and one thing about Nova Scotia and Eastern Canada and the Maritimes, they have so much in common with New England. In fact, the people there, their favorite team is largely the Bruins. They love the Red Sox more than they love the Toronto Blue Jays. They go shopping there. Boston is the closest city to Nova Scotia. Uh, We share a ferry. You can take it from Yarmouth down to Portland. 
there's just so much in common, the fishing and, and the culture is shared. So one of the things I learned was not to talk too much about the Canadians and the Leafs and maybe focus a little bit more on the Red Sox and the Bruins. <laughs> that explains it all now. I didn't know that. See? Well, I should have also pointed out they get their television, at least at the time they got their television from, from Bangor, Maine. And so the ads would run and people would, you know, take jaunts down to Bangor on shopping sprees and, you know, the, this this shared culture. And you cross the border between Callis, Maine and St. Stephen, New Brunswick, and you take Highway 9 all the way through Backwoods, Maine and get on I-95 and then life's a party. So what was the first move into uh, sort of a management role for you? Well, that didn't come till later. I went to Montreal after Nova Scotia in 1992, and I got on at Shome doing all nights. And here we are, 1992, 1993, and 1994, some great years in Montreal with the Canadians winning the Stanley Cup. The Expos were coming on, and I was working at the legendary Shome FM doing all nights. It was, it was absolutely amazing. And I suppose there was a managerial component at that point because I was assistant music director shortly after because I knew how to work the, um, I, I guess at the time it was RCS or selector. I came with some experience. Uh, I learned, worked in the music department. I learned how it worked and worked alongside Neil Kirshner in, in the music department. So I suppose that was really my first sort of taste of radio management experience. And again, once you get on the computer and you learn to program it, uh, the opportunities will come faster and more furious down the road. Talk about some of the music of that era, too, that was uh, uh, moving Montreal uh, in, the, in that market. So Montreal has, is a very unique market as it is between its Anglo and its Franco. I try to think of where the roots of the music are. It was Shome was built on Genesis and Yes, uh, King Crimson. Those long instrumental songs really resonated with a francophone population that was very used to being in church, that was very used to sitting through long uh, orchestral pieces. Um, a band like Styx, who would have a hit with Sweet Madame Blue more than any other market, Chris DeBerg, Spanish Train, just absolutely resonates. And we would have American consultants come in and take a look and say, why is Babe Ruth the Mexican your tops, you know, testing song? Uh, meanwhile, we would find songs like Bad Company would sit towards the bottom. You know, that Midwestern hard rock American stuff didn't resonate as well uh, with what was predominantly a French-Canadian audience. Shom had 70% uh, French listeners. Well, there's a lot of bilingual people, but it wasn't uncommon that you would answer the request line at Shom in Montreal, and they'd only know French. And if you only knew English, you'd find a way to understand that they really wanted to hear Kiss rock and roll all night. And what about two standby bands, Rush and Triumph? What did they mean to Chum? To Shom, those bands didn't resonate as well, although 2112 was popular. There was a bit of a dividing line when it came to music in Canada, and there still is to this day, I think. And, you know, we have, we have CanCon regulations whereby at the time it was 30% Canadian content to be played on the radio. Now it's 35%. And I would often find that the music would divide at the Ottawa River. So somewhere in the middle of Ottawa, the river runs. And of course, historically, that's how Canada was anyway, Upper Canada and Lower Canada, as it were. Eventually, it came together. But a, a band like Triumph didn't necessarily do as well 
in Montreal. Rush would do well, um, predominantly because of those long orchestral songs. Um, but it was really hit and miss as to as to what would would really resonate with this particular audience. So what was your next move after that in your career? Edmonton, which is a long way from Montreal. But I was 24 years old and offered a full-time job to do evenings and a swing shift at 100.3 The Bear. It was an opportunity to work with Standard Radio, which was led by Gary Slate. Uh, it was a family company. They had stations in every market, and they had launched the bear in 1992 and i guess i was part of you know year three of 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 that project and, and came in and i learned a lot of things very quickly um definitely that, that what i'll call canadian radio and hard rock radio was alive and well um in comparison to what was going on in montreal which is a different brand of radio altogether but i also learned about the writing and how to write for radio. So whether it was doing a six o'clock rock report with Jeff Woods, whether it was, you know, constructing, you know, bits for air, you know, how to be irreverent, trying to aim higher with your comedy and your humor. It was a much different game in Edmonton. There were more radio stations on the market. There's at the time, I think there were about 10 or 11 FM radio stations that you were fighting with With in comparison to Montreal, where there was like sort of a split between English and French you know, radio stations. There were really only three FM Montreal radio stations, so there's lots of pie to choose from. So I learned what it was, was like to be in a competitive market. I learned what it was like to get to know a new city, which was very different from Montreal. I think my first year, it was, it was tough. It was tough to find a good place to eat. I mean, the food in Montreal is, is, is fantastic. And in Edmonton, it was, it, it was quite different. Um, once I got all past that and realized how great work was, I spent, again, a lot of time at work, living, learning. I learned to really work with record labels, um, learned how to work at a national level and to report in. And to uh, eventually, I got, my reins on, I got my hands on the reins of the music uh, department and I was the music director there right through until 2001. But it was artist relationships, bands, how to interview a band, um, how to do an afternoon drive show eventually when I got promoted there and interview the band and manage all these extra balls in there. It was really probably the most fun I ever had doing radio, going out to concerts at night. And this is the 90s where there's a lot of grunge music. There's also a lot of sort of borderline pop music that that charts well and does well bands like semisonic and collective soul and sort of learning how to manage a playlist how to go up against a classic rock radio station learning to read the trades and follow along and then come to some decisions and you know get get some local wins as well and uh so you were there till the early 2000s you said yeah and then it was back to show i mean i was couldn't pass up an opportunity. The company that I was working for, Standard Radio, wound up buying uh, Shome in Montreal. And they said, would you like to go back and, and do this? And I said, absolutely, I would. And so I went back with, this time it was owned by Standard. I think the first few you know weeks were a little difficult. There were some people that I knew and some friends that I had made from the previous incarnation who were being let go. And that was sad to see. Um, but at the same time, you know, I had the next four years there. Uh, we had to relaunch Shome. It needed to be repackaged. We needed to put a shine on it. And there was a lot of people, you know, like Blair Bartram, who uh, went on to work at Mix 99 in Toronto. 
you know, who, you know, helped. We brought Terry DeMonte back to the morning show. He was over on talk radio, CJAD. So we we were really rebuilding and putting the shine back on a legendary Montreal radio station. And that was really a lot of fun to be a part of. And in that relaunch period of 2002, you know, we saw a nice jump of about 20 to 25%. We I felt we repatriated the audience quite well. And from there, it wasn't too difficult a job just to manage uh, this great radio station because Montrealers loved it. And I loved it. And it was a great time, great period. And how long were you able to, to stay there? Till 2006. So it was four years. There was a little struggle that I had inside the company. I wasn't officially program director. They said, you take care of Shom, but there was always one program director to sort of oversee three other radio stations. So I was really doing a, a strong management job. They said, we'll look for a programming job for you in the company. That never came about, unfortunately. Um, and by 2006, I was offered an opportunity to move to Winnipeg to work for Chorus Radio, who had a flamethrower of a radio station called Power 97. And I, I jumped at that opportunity. I thought it was a, a good one to make. I kind of rationalized it in my head. I sort of counted out the number of people. In Montreal, there were 750,000 Anglophone, English-speaking Montrealers, and I'm, that's the exact number of people in Winnipeg. So I thought, ah, I can justify that move. And so what did you learn from that, you know, that next move? What were the key takeaways as a manager that you took from that? I think the best part was having a morning show that was ready to roll really, really helped. And it f- allowed me to really focus on the first hundred days. So Ross Winters, who hired me, we said, well, let's really focus on your first hundred days and what you're going to be doing and the tone that's going to be set, and the expectations that you want your staff to have. And in that period, without really doing too much, a couple of people left. And I think they really liked the old regime and maybe felt that they would become a little bit more accountable with me in there. Now, I don't want to say these people. These people actually wound up coming back, which I found to be a little bit funny. Down the road, I wound up rehiring them, and they needed to go off and, and do some things. But I always think the first year when you come into a new management role is not to do too much at once. What we really want to do is we want to bring what worked back in the other market into the new market. I much prefer to do a nice, quiet lap around the track. Do one year, see what it's like, really get a feel. Ask them why they do things in this particular way. What's the experience like? Speaking to people and listening is just so important in that in that first year. I mean, listen, if it's obvious, you make a change, you just make the change. But the rest of it really does come down to listening because you really can't fall into a trap of bringing some ideas from an old market into a new one and then finding out they don't work. And then you're a little further behind the eight ball than when you really started. I have to think during all these periods, you as a keen observer of... Um of media and certainly radio in the U S that you were keeping your eye on some radio stations and sort of, you know, checking them out and getting inspired by them. Um, uh, who were some of those stations that inspired you in the U S KISW in, in Seattle? I, I think there was a Canadian connection at the time, you know, Kathy Faulkner, who I recently had on, on my show was working under Steve Young, 
who had a Winnipeg connection. And so many of the people that I'd worked with in Canada, including JJ Johnson and Terry DeMonte, they'd all worked in through Winnipeg and worked under Steve brother, Jake Edwards, Steve touched so many Canadian broadcasters. It is incredible. And so that was one station we would always keep our eye on and, or keep our ear on anyway, to see what they were doing on the playlist, whether it was promotions and whatnot. I myself, being from Montreal, the closest stations from there are, are down in Boston. So I'd always keep my ear to WAAF, um, WBCN. These were stations that I felt had a lot to do with you know Montreal and the alternative scene, and it was a great place to pick up ideas and, and records. But you know, wherever I traveled in America, I would always listen to to you know to great radio wherever I could find it. I think Mark and Brian at KLOS. That's when we would just ask for, you know, air checks for just for the morning show, just so they could listen to hear what they were doing. And so I was a big proponent of of getting air checks for, from other markets. And even it was just, oh, well, let's see what Detroit's doing this week. And, you know, WCSX is a classic rock radio station. Let me just hear the imaging. Um, let me hear what, how, what songs are starting off the hour with. It can be really simple stuff. It didn't necessarily have to be a, a radio station, you know, a, of a like format. Um and then when there was some, you know, really, when there was some really irreverent stuff, we really wanted to pay attention to what the power pig was doing. Just what's that noise all about? And where did that lead to? I mean, that was, that was some attitude era CHR that, you know, later on in 1997, 98, 99, you know, that was really, you know, attitude era for rock radio. So you could still go back and listen to that stuff and, 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 and pick up and add that to your radio station at the time. So how did you come up with the vision of what you're currently doing today, which, you know, is, is a conglomeration of a, a few different uh, things? How did you create that vision? I didn't mean to. Actually, it started by getting fired. Um, and I, I got restructured. There was nothing really crazy about it other than I was making a very nice, uh, you know, paycheck. And, you know, for Winnipeg, that was probably a little bit too much money. And I'm, so it, here I was, it was 2014. It was the, it was actually the 25th anniversary of that day that I mentioned earlier on in, on our walk when I first took to the air, you know, that very first nerve wracking day, 25th anniversary. And I, I got fired and I said, well, I guess that's the universe that would time that out just absolutely perfectly. But you know, I went and, and I had some offers to go back into radio. And they were in places like Regina. There was an opportunity in Calgary. It really wasn't going to be a good fit for my kids to be moving at that point. And I thought, wait a second, let's just stop. What's happening here? There's so much incredible audio that is being created, whether it was going to be voiceover, whether it was going to be on the internet, whether it was going to be, you know, in podcasting, so much of it was being created. And, you know, if radio is going to demand a little bit less of it, that's okay. I'll find a way to, to create some more audio. So I took my voiceover business and moved that into a more formal structure. No longer was it going to be just something I would do in, you know, the off hours, you know, after five o'clock, it was something that I was going to okay, let's incorporate the business. Let's really be serious about it. And I had a lot of people who called me up for some radio consulting, of which I did that for two years. And that was a, that was a fun experience to go through. The hard part I found was trying to find the business. And you know, there are so many great radio consultants out there and people that you can, that you can find out. I'm not sure that I would have been the one to necessarily go and, and, and you know, 
eke my way into into that particular market and whether it was going to be a talent coach or whether it was going to be to fix your radio station uh, but it was a trip to podcast movement actually it wasn't it was a trip to the conclave in 2016 where i i made a commitment to let's see what american radio is doing there's not as much action happening in canada they're going through some cuts it's there's just one conference that takes place every year that's really major that's in Toronto. It's surrounded by Canadian Music Week and the music industry. Let me go see what they're doing down in Minneapolis. And went down there, and it was an eye-opening experience to find out what was going on. I said, you know, this is kind of a nice thing that's going on where there's some mentoring and people helping out. I think I'm going to start a podcast. And I started a podcast, and I said, well, what am I going to start a podcast about? And it turns out the only thing I really knew was radio. And I thought, oh, you know, Larry Gifford has a podcast called Radio Stuff, and I don't want to. All right, I'll just do one too. And so I did one, and I said, well, I'll do it every week. I made the commitment after about the first year to do it every week. And can we find a way to bottle the excitement that we're having at a radio conference and share it 52 weeks? That was the goal. And a couple weeks later, I wound up going to the podcast movement in Chicago, and I thought, oh, a lot of people here with microphones who are doing things, and I didn't understand what they were doing with it all. It kind of reminded me of pond hockey, where there's a stick and a puck, and people are just skating around, and there's no boards. And so, well, I can keep the puck on my stick through all this because I know audio and microphones and recording quite well. When I find the goal, I'll, I'll take a shot and score. So that was the thinking. A lot of it was just you know trying it hanging around, asking questions. Uh, how, you know, what program do you think we need to do for this and this particular thing? It could have been the five minutes after just talking with Mark Ramsey, uh, who at one point had consulted, you know, the radio station I was at. And he said, you know, you really should get off SoundCloud. And I said, oh yeah, that's not good, is it? I, so I went and found another home for that. It could be the 10 minutes I spent talking to Jeff Schmidt, who is longtime imaging uh, producer at KFOG in, in San Francisco. He says, you know, your, your show's a little bit loud. It's overcompressed. I thought, oh, it's a headphone experience. Yeah, we're going to have to fix that. So I got, I got there through a lot, of, a lot of help from talking to a lot of people. But I spent you know, a fair amount of time by myself thinking about stuff, but nothing really changed until I left the house to go off and meet people and find out that there's a whole world of audio out there and people willing to share and help and help create great audio. So what's the state of um, audio slash radio in Canada versus the U.S. What do you see in Canada that maybe we're not seeing in the U.S. trend-wise? So one element I'm looking at is podcast advertising, and we're just not there yet. Canadians are a little bit more conservative. They're not really ready to spend and move into the podcast area to make that dedication to, a, let's say, a particular podcast host to do a mid-roll ad. Um, the programmatic side of things, it can be very, very bizarre. 
if you wanted to fill that those programmatic spots, you'll actually find that if you get downloads in the States, those will fill it 100%. Meanwhile, your Canadian audience, there's not enough of it to, to fill. We just don't have the number of advertisers who are committed as of yet. I, re- I really do hope that that, that is something that, that changes in, in the future. Uh, Canadian radio as a whole, I think they've got something that they're paying attention to right now. And that's, you know, how does Canadian radio stay Canadian in this day and age of me being able to roll over and ask to listen to 107.1, the peak out of Westchester, which happened this morning, but how does Canadian radio compete against that? And, you know, for years we could rely on, you know, government legislation to make sure that 35% Canadian music would be played. But, you know, right now they just passed something called the broadcast streaming act. It is called bill C 11. And the CRTC, which governs this sort of thing, has to figure out how they're going to be able to roll rules into the internet without rolling any rules into the internet. Because I'm not sure you can tell any of these tech companies exactly what to do. And I think that's going to be a struggle for the next, you know, three or four years as Canadians try to find a way to, you know, keep it Canadian, as it were, on the internet. And at the same time, listen, you know, my show is is consciously making sure that we get American listeners. And when I started my, my podcast, I said, I want at least half the audience to be American. Um, this is, you know, we're in, a, we're in a global world. Radio is certainly global. So is podcasting. And, you know, I think it, you need to create something to export more than anything. If you want something Canadian to be great, it, sh- you sh- it should be exportable. <laughs> Neil Young, <laughs> you know, we, we managed to export that, that content. I mean, some of the greats, you know, Canadian things, you know, get exported. Um, and I think a lot of YouTubers were very, very leery of any you know, government interference that would stop Americans or anybody around the world from, you know, checking out their YouTube channels. So when there was discussion of this broadcast act, there was a lot of blowback from people saying, don't touch anything. I'm doing just well, thank you very much, and I don't need any government legislation to keep me Canadian because I'm I'm doing just fine. So this is something that is is very difficult, and th- this extends, by the way, to move to movie makers, so to you know people who make movie content, and it extends to you know Netflix and should Netflix be paying into the Canadian fund for Canadians to make you know whether it's audio content or or video content. So these are very very interesting times to see how far government can really reach into to legislate culture are canadian broadcasters uh investing in talent differently than u.s broadcasters absolutely so the canadian uh, broadcast industry has very very much been very close um there are initiatives such as star maker there are initiatives such as as factor that have been trying to grow Canadian music for years. Really, when I, I say music, but they're really trying to grow their own Canadian content because if you have to fill 30% of the playlist, I mean, if I bring it back to 1971 when the first Canadian content was rolled out, radio stations had nothing. They had the Guess Who, uh, maybe Anne Murray. <laughs> there wasn't a whole heck of a lot out there. And if we look at, you know, even a band like Rush, I mean, it took an American, it took Donna Halper at WMMS to, you know, put that record on and play it. And it sounded like the new Zeppelin. And, you know, eventually that was sort of like the roots of, 
uh, of Rush getting started. So it's very complicated this idea of creating a, a you know a star system. But you know I mentioned Canadian Music Week, which takes place in Toronto, and it's where the industry industry gathers. But it's very very close. I think Canadians work very hard together to create you know Canadian content because you know we're in it together. So um, what's your position on? Artificial intelligence and the radio industry. Yeah, this is not going to be a popular one, I don't think, the way I think about it. I have heard some breaks uh, driving across um, on my trips between, you know, Wisconsin and, and all the way back to Sault Ste. Marie and up to Canada. And I've heard some breaks that could probably really use some artificial intelligence. Uh, they've just, you know, some of it can be so rudimentary that it can be taken care of, you know, in, in that, you know, area. But you know, when it comes to personality, the personality is always going to win. You got to meet someone. It's, I mean, it's it's on air, online, and in person. You know, you got your air attack, you got your ground attack, you got your online attack. AI is not going to be able to go and shake hands with you out and about in in the community. So I think we're probably we're going to have a lot. In the end, we're going to have better personalities. We're going to have much stronger radio personalities, but we may find that there are fewer of them. How do uh, Canadian broadcasters um, incubate new ideas? Do they have a process that maybe U.S. broadcasters could learn from? No. No, it's it's actually quite disappointing. Um, sometime in... In the, in the 2000s, what happened was the phone companies began to take over uh, Canadian radio uh, and a cable company, as it were. So, you know, I'll just point the finger at Rogers, Chorus, and Bell, which are three stations, uh, three companies that own the majority of the radio stations. Another one is called Stingray, which is kind of sort of in that boat. But, you know, in 2013, I began to get worried. I saw at Canadian Music Week, which, you know, a gathering of radio people and music people, I didn't see radio really coming together to help what was going on. And this could have been, it could have been the radio regs. The radio regs needed to be updated. They didn't update these things for 25 plus years. And they just got, they're just getting to it now with the passing of this legislation. But there are things that they should have been doing to really fix the product a, a, a long time ago. But these places are not run by radio people. They're run by phone companies. And a company like Bell owns radio stations to sell phones and promote their TV shows and promote some of the other things they have going on. And that may sound a little bit cold, but it's you know, kind of true. When you look at the, you know, what's coming out of the radio, there's not a lot of shared ideas until they were really forced to get together to talk about maybe we should really revisit what what constitutes Canadian content. And and so it has been disappointing for many years um, to see this going on, to see companies working in, in fiefdoms, not necessarily getting together as much to discuss, you know, how it could be better. Uh, I think a, they're under tremendous, tremendous duress, I think, on the digital side, because the CBC does have a lot of money. It's CBC is a public uh, entity. Um, they've put a lot of money into digital. They've done digital very well, but it's also been at the behest of a lot of other, you know, private broadcasters who've tried to do digital and haven't uh, really managed to do it uh, as well. 
it, it's tough to come together in Canada. We're very far apart from one another. There are successful stations in successful markets with um, stations that do very well. But as a whole, there's not a lot of getting together, getting all the radio people around the table to really talk about how it could be better. That may be changing as this online streaming act comes together. But by and large, it's we've really been looking to the U.S. and to Europe for what the possibilities are. Matt, can you share some of your key learnings for the audience uh, as a podcaster that might be transferable to other podcasters? Yeah. So if you're thinking about starting a podcast, start the podcast. Be prepared to make the mistakes, and it's okay to make the mistakes and to go through the process of, well, that was really the wrong title. Well, I'm not really sure that sounded perfectly. Your first five episodes are not going to be very good. And it's not that they're terrible. It's just that it's not going to be your vision of what you want your podcast to be right away. It will get better week after week and year after year. Can you release consistently? That would also help because then you can sort of establish a little bit of a ground game with your you know, audience who would get into the wonderful habit of listening to your show. There's something to be said about, about being consistent. The morning show on the radio is there every day at a particular time. The Love Boat always aired at eight o'clock on a Saturday night, followed by Fantasy Island. You're creating a media habit when, you, when you're doing a podcast. So stay into contact with your listener and let them know when the episode is going to be out and be available and, and really stick to it because you know they're going to count on you to, to put out the show and you want to be able to put it out for them on time. Don't fuss too much about downloads. And if you only got 100 downloads, that's fine. If you got 50, that's fine. And I think you have to ask yourself, if you were given the opportunity to speak to 50 people once a week at a particular time, you'd probably take that opportunity if it were in person. So continue to take the opportunity with your podcast if it's just getting 50 downloads you know, a week. Great insights. You always pass it on and you pay it forward. I appreciate you being on Taking a Walk, Matt, very much. Thanks. You know, if it were any other year, I'd be spending my summer in Proud Snack, Maine, and I would have made the drive down to see it, and we would have had the walk down in Boston. Taking a Walk with Buzz Knight is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. 
Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.